Hi, this is Rodney Taylor with Owen Roisman today. We're going to talk about the taking of Pelham 123. Owen Roisman, ASC, burst onto the feature film scene with the French Connection in 1971. Owen changed the landscape of cinematography for feature films using natural light, darkness, and grit to tell the story of New York City cop Popeye Doyle trying to intercept a heroin shipment from France. Owen would receive an Oscar nomination for cinematography, his first released feature film. He would receive four more Oscar nominations for The Exorcist Network, Tootsie, and Wyatt Earp. In 1997, he earned the ASC Lifetime Achievement Award. Today, we're going to talk about the film The Taking of Pelham 123. The film is set underground in New York City's subway system. A gang of armed men led by Robert Shaw hijack a train threatening to kill one hostage per minute unless their demands are met. Walter Matthau's character, Lieutenant Garber, must ad lib, bully, con, and shrewdly outmaneuver the villains in a battle of wits. I wanted to talk with Owen about shooting the Taking of Pelham 123 and the challenges he faced in the anamorphic format with slow lenses and slow film stocks. This kind of came about when I had a conversation at last year's open house with Robert Ellswood. He was talking about how the films of the 70s inspired him to become a cinematographer, and particularly the work Owen had done at that time. He went on to say to take a look at Taking of Pelham 123, shot in a subway with anamorphic lenses, slow film stocks, a photochemical release print. He said, even today, I don't know if I could pull that off with the modern tools we have. And the next night, he would receive the ASC Award for Best Cinematography. I was very curious about this statement. It had been a long time since I saw the film. So I went and watched it again. And after watching it, I wanted to talk with Owen and see just how he had pulled this off. Owen, before we talk about um, the, the taking of Pelham 123, though, let's talk a little bit about some of your history. And Your dad was a cinematographer in New York. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, he was. He was a newsreel cameraman for oh, quite a while, 20 years or so, for Fox Movie Tone News. When news, when TV came in, news kind of like took a back seat, and he, along with a lot of other people, got let go. So he segued into commercials. And did you hang out on the sets back then? Was this something you wanted to do from from the beginning, be a cinematographer? Uh, no, I, he used to take me to sets once in a while when he was working on an interesting show. He did some TV shows, too. Worked on the Bilko show for, for years as an operator. Uh, I, I had no idea. I was in college then, and um, I still hadn't decided what I wanted to do. I think we should talk a little bit about the French Connection. We want to keep it more um, about Pelham, but let's talk about the French Connection. How did you meet Will, William Friedkin in the beginning? I mean, how did you get that job, basically? Billy was looking for somebody to shoot the French Connection, and uh, I hadn't ever met him before. Dick DeBona, who owned General Camera Corporation in New York, recommended to Billy that he um, check me out. Billy had hired somebody, and then he did, the guy showed him something he had done. Uh, he thought the French Connection should look, and Billy hated it and fired him before they even started, and that's how the job opened up. So now he, the fact that he was looking for somebody, and then on Dick's recommendation, we took a film that I had just finished. It was a totally different kind of film. It was high key. I shot it in the tropics in Puerto Rico, actually, and a lot of long lenses, very, you know, more like commercial than, than the French Connection. And we screened that. And um, based on that, he offered me the French Connection. Of course, at that point, he made, did he know what the French Connection w- was going to look like eventually, or, or did only, you know? The only, thing he, the only thing Billy had said was he'd like it to be like a documentary, but not quite a documentary, like a gritty kind of documentary, but not all the way towards documentary. So talk about that a little bit. I mean, I, I don't feel like if I remember my history, film history that well, I mean, films didn't look like the French Connection. I mean, you came in and shot, it was very naturally naturally lit, it was, um, you know, gritty. I don't recall films looking like that. I feel like you were groundbreaking in that, in that film. Well, I didn't have any idea at the time that it was going to be groundbreaking, but I approached it like I've approached every film since. I get the script, I read it, I visualize a mood, and then based on what the director says, too, that he'd like, I try to get that. Like Billy said, I'd like it to be like a gritty street film, you know, and uh, almost a documentary, but very gritty. So I had in mind gritty, and I was trying to figure out how can I make it look gritty. And so I did a few tests and experimented with a couple of things, and I had never shot anything like that before because I came from that commercial background. Everything was high-key. I mean, you didn't dare shoot anything like that in commercials. You'd never get another job. <laughs> right. 
But um, I just came up with a look. Um, I forced developed the film. I underexposed on top of that, printed it up, so I had a very thin negative, which makes it always look a little flat and, and, right. and uh, more, uh, more of a documentary look, like you had to grab everything. Talk a little bit about the lighting style. I mean, in the, in the 60s, and, he, and certainly previous to the 60s, but even in the 60s, you know, when you see a scene lit, an interior, for instance, you, you really can feel where the sources are, but, but they don't necessarily come from a window. They're, they're more like there's a 10K near the camera and it's lighting the actor. Uh, the French Connection or the taking of Pelham 123 are nothing like that. So that, that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say was a different language at that time. And how did you... How did you decide to do that? Well, it's funny because I always love source lighting. I like, I like if, if you, somebody's by a window, I think they should be lit like the light's coming from the window. If they're near a lamp, it should look like it's coming from the lamp. If the light is overhead in a room, then I try to simulate that. And in a way, it was different. But in a way from, I guess, it's something I probably shouldn't even say. But... Sometimes I'd look at something and say, hmm, how the heck am I going to light this? And i say, well, the light source is coming from over there. I'll try to recreate that. And I would try to recreate something. It's, it's like in the French Connection, I wanted it to look like it was available light all the time. I wanted it to look like I didn't do any lighting. Um, my hobby was magic. And, and, I, and, the one th- and I'm the best audience for a magician in the world because I want to be fooled. And I'm always curious, how does somebody do it? So I wanted to fool people in how I would do things and how I would light something. So if somebody looked at it and said, how the heck did he light that? that then I know I did it right. And, and, I, and I wanted it to look natural. I mean, Billy had said, let's make it look realistic. And so I figured, okay, I have to recreate an available light look. And that's what I went for. Now, available light is not, you know, lit by whatever's coming through the window. You have to recreate that. Tell us a little about that. Well, available light to me is whatever is available from the truck. That's my, my concept yeah. of available light. To me, it's easier to, to create an available light look than it is to just do theatrical lighting, I'll call it, where you would take a 10K and put it next to the camera and, right. and then use a fill light there and a backlight and kick right. lights and all that, yeah. um, which is what... They used to do and yeah. did very well, I must say. Oh, they did, certainly. Yeah, I mean, so it was great. beautiful work back yeah, then. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And, um, but to me, if, if somebody's in a room, there's only one window and there's nothing else in the room, I'm going to do it with one source of soft light mm-hmm. and I won't fill it in at all. And I, and I learned in commercials, and I was doing that in my commercial shooting, where I try to use no fill light. Because that's something else, too, I sort of got pushed into. The clients loved that look. And I got a lot of it from still photographers. Right. And I worked with a couple of still photographers that were directors at the time. And, uh, and I was influenced a lot by their desires and their taste. And I just carried that off into commercials. I mean, into features. Right. Well, let's get into the taking of Pelham 123. Um, I love the film. Okay. And, um, you know, and now that I've shot some anamorphic films, I, I agree with 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 Robert it's uh, I feel like it'd be very difficult to recreate this the way you did it you did it so well and um, talk a little bit about uh, well first talk about anamorphic format how you decided to do that in, in the tunnels of well the picture was supposed to be shot in 185 when I was hired that's what that's what uh, Joe Sargent the director wanted and the producer who was Edgar Sherrick that's what he wanted when I went down to look at some of the locations and I stood on the subway platform and I watched the trains coming in and out and went in the tunnels and things like that, I was seeing it more uh, in anamorphic because the trains lent themselves to that format. They were long and narrow and not tall. And I thought, boy, anamorphic would be perfect for this film. And so I, said, I mentioned it to Joe and to Edgar, and they said, no, no, we shoot at 185 because it was more expensive to do an anamorphic also. And I said, would you mind if I shoot some tests? I'll shoot some comparison tests, and, and if you like the 185 better, that's fine. We'll do the 185. And they said, sure, go ahead. Knock yourself out. So I took a couple of cameras down um, to, um, well, actually the camera and just different sets of lenses mm-hmm. to get down to the subway uh, station. And set up and just shot trains coming in and out and a few other things, a few other shots and little pieces. 
And I did that for a half a day or so. And then sent it out. And the next day we looked at it. And hands down, it wasn't even a contest. They said, wow, the anamorphic is so much better. We have to do it in anamorphic. I said, great. Now I had to figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know what you were getting into, did yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> well, the lenses were slower. And, right. uh, you know, but, but I knew that the format was right. Yeah, talk about that, because I don't know if modern-day cinematographers even understand what you're up against in terms of, you know, I mean, I think we forget that you didn't have 500-speed film stock, you didn't have uh, very fast lenses, and, and what, just technically, what were you up against with those lenses, and, and do you remember the f-stops on the lenses then, and, and the, um, you know, the film speed at that time? Uh, film speed was 100. Uh, that, that I know. It was 52, 54. It's the same film I used on uh, French Connection and The Exorcist. Uh, and it was a great stock. Just terrific. Didn't hold up over time. It faded, but, uh-huh. but um, they corrected that a couple of years later. But it was a wonderful stock and it had a nice mid-range. It wasn't as good on the low end as it was on the high end. Uh, and it didn't have the range of today's films. You, you couldn't go five, six steps over and and right. I, I don't know how many under you can go nowadays, but uh, if you went past one and a half, two stops, you were really pushing the film. Really? And, and for most of what I was doing, I had enough light. There was enough light in the subway station, uh, and there was enough light in the subway cars to shoot with no lighting if I wanted. But it was the tunnels that were the big, big problem. And I had to figure out how could I get enough light in the tunnels without lighting it up like crazy to be able to see everything. And so I came up with um, a theory again that I did some more tests, and what I did was I pre-flashed the film. Um, And I tried different percentages for the tests, and I came up with... It doesn't make any difference what the number is because each lab would be different, but it was 20%. And then so what we would do is we'd take a roll of film, they would pre-flash it. They run it through their optical printer, and expose it to light, and and add a light level to the film. That ostensibly sped up the film to start with. On top of that, I force developed it because I still wanted to have a realistic look, and that would give it a little more realistic look. So now I was up to say 200 ASA or ISO, and and plus the flashing. And the reason I pre-flashed instead of post-flashed is because if something goes wrong in the flashing, in post-flashing, you've already shot the film. Now you've ruined it. Okay. But this way, they could, they could run a, a light test on the, the beginning and the end of each roll to see if the flashing was consistent. They were able to, um, I forgot what they called it at the time, but there, there was a certain test they could do. And so we had exposed film. It was just exposed to white light, that's right. all. And what it did was it opened the shadows up dramatically. So whereas you wouldn't see any detail at all without the flashing, all of a sudden you saw an unbelievable amount of detail in the shadows. And so I could shoot with more available kind of light than I would the other way. And how did it affect the blacks? How did those hold up in the, in the, in the film? Well, I didn't care as much about the blacks because, again, I wanted to have um, that gritty look to it so the blacks could fall apart as far as I was concerned. And what it did was it just opened them up a little bit. If I had enough exposure in the scene and you printed it down enough, your blacks would hold up, but they'd be a different... It wouldn't be as black-black as right. you might want, but it was fine. It was, it was what, I, what looked right for the film. And did, did, these, did, did all this testing lead you to the look of the film? Is that how it occurred, or did you have something in mind before you began all the testing? Well, I had in mind to, to keep it real again because it real lent itself to that as far as I was concerned. I liked the real look, and usually by that time, the pictures that I had out when directors hired me, they wanted it to look real. Um, <laughs> that's what, in fact, later on, when I was trying to do more stylized things, the directors would say, no, I want you to make it real, you know. <laughs> and so I got branded that way. But I didn't mind it. I liked, I liked doing it. I liked the look of it. How did you, how did you meet jo- Joseph Sargent? I don't remember exactly how I met Joe. Um, I guess I got a call one day, and, and um, I had worked with Edgar Sherrick before. The, the, the producer, producer. Yeah. Uh, he did. He was a producer on the Heartbreak Kid. So, 
Um, I had worked with Edgar, and maybe Edgar recommended me to, to Joe. I'm not sure. And so uh, I got my first meeting with Joe, and I don't even remember that meeting or, or anything, but um, just uh, they gave me the job, and and the rest was history. Right. <laughs> um. Now, in in the film, there are a lot of fluorescents in the film, and I would imagine before uh, before that, or certainly within a couple of years of that, cinematographers stayed away from those as much as possible when they were trying to to make films. Um, talk about you really embraced fluorescence in that film, and how you came about to to do that. Well, we didn't have a choice. Right. We, we really didn't have a choice. The same on the French Connection. Um, we had a lot of fluorescence on that, too. And that was my first exposure to fluorescence. And I learned how to deal with them on that picture. And so I wasn't as intimidated by them as a lot of people might have been. And I knew how that particular emulsion reacted to fluorescence, which wasn't as good as later emulsions. Uh, later emulsions, I think, held the color spectrum better. And this was long before Kina flows or corrected what we have now corrected fluorescent tubes that are daylight or tungsten oh yeah well well, what i found out about working with fluorescence right off the bat was if you're going i'd find out what kind of fluorescence were in the fixtures what but to like cool white or cool white deluxe or you know warm white and each one had its own color spectrum and and the name was misleading they weren't always like that at all but that emotion was, was, had, a, had a very strange sensitivity to fluorescence. And so most of the time it was cool whites wherever you went. All the stores had cool whites. Any, any industrial place, commercial place was cool whites. What I learned to do was instead of trying to match incandescent lights, putting filters on them and trying to match them to the fluorescence, we would make fluorescent fixtures like poor man Kino flows. We would make up fixtures, get the bulbs, and... I would use those as my lighting tools wherever I could, use them for fill light or use them for a key light if I, was, had to, if I could get them in close enough. And naturally, you don't get as much light out of them uh, because the film was slower. So, <laughs> but but you, you still, I still could get enough to get exposure. And, um, and let's face it, they're on the blue end of the spectrum to start with. Right. And that's more sensitive. The film is always more sensitive to the blue end of the spectrum, so it was easy to get more exposure. I think this is where this magician thing is happening, isn't it? <laughs> With the fluorescence. Um, did, you, did you end up adding lights in the subways? For instance, you know, we see them in the shots. Did, did, you, did the production designer add more so you could get to your exposure, or did you just take what was there? No, when we were in the platform, the platform itself it was basically available light, whatever was there. I did you some mean real available tests. light or from the truck? Real available. Okay. I, I, I did some exposure tests to find out the optimum exposure, and I don't remember what it was at the time, 2.3, something like that, or 2.8 maybe, but no more than that because usually I was working wide open most of the time. So let's say it was 2.3. And then in the car, it was a different color fluorescent, slightly different. The big challenge was for me when it came to the subways up on the platform, what happens when the emergency lights go on, which was in the script? How are we going to get that look? Because now we have to go to something else. And um, I took it, I went totally 180 degrees the opposite way. What we did was they had these loom line bulbs, the things that go underneath counters, and we were able to take the... Um, the fixtures apart and slip these loom line bulbs in there and wire them, get them all so that we, we would have enough to get an exposure with a warm looking light. And I wanted it to be really warm so it was totally different than the fluorescence. And then we just had them on a switch and we could control turning off the lights in the car and switching on these emergency lights. So Dusty Wallace, who was my gaffer, who was brilliant with rigging these things, he, um, he was able to get it all wired up and rigged and everything. So all we had to do was flip a switch. And, the, and it was darker also, right? It wasn't just warmer, but it was also significantly darker than when the fluorescents were on. Yeah, it was darker. And the, the loom lines by themselves don't really throw off a, a lot of light. So, And I don't remember if it was the loom lines we jacked up or 
What I did was to match those lights, I got little 25-watt mushroom bulbs, little teeny mushroom bulbs, and we got um, dentist mirrors, and we, we removed the mirrors from the, from the arm and attached these little tiny fixtures that would hold this 25-watt 25 25 bayonet-style mushroom bulb, which frosted bulb. And then we built little cans and, and foil for them to snoot them. And we were able to just tape them to the ceiling like you would a low light. So they, they weighed nothing, and right. you could hide them behind the posts in the cars. You could get them on the ceiling with the anamorphic. It was great because you could keep yeah. them out of the frame. Right. And I would use those for key lights uh, for the guys. And I'd just get it as close as I could and get an exposure. And we would jack those up to 180 volts. It was, well, 100, yeah, it was, I think it was 180. It was 140 was the first step, and I think it was 180 was the second step. And that would give us the right color temperature and um, the good, good exposure. I used those, those same things in network to, to do a similar okay. thing when I need to hide lights. Now, the film is darker than films were back then, too. I mean, do you want to talk about that, about letting the film go really dark and... I didn't think it was dark. <laughs> to me, it wasn't dark. <laughs> I, what, which part are you referring to? Because I don't know. I really like dark too. So I'm <laughs> I, I didn't find it dark. But we just looked at yeah. here. No, that wasn't. No. no. Um, well, let's look at a specific shot from the okay. film. Now, just I'll describe it to the audience for the for the moment. We're looking down the um, down the subway platform, and a train is coming towards us. And there's 180. We see the conductor and the uh, or the engineer, and then we pan 180 degrees and meet Robert Shaw in a beautiful close-up. It looks like very shallow depth of field. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about your approach to lighting that? Because um, you know you're again, it's this anamorphic in the tunnel in the subway. You're panning 180 degrees into a beautifully lit close-up. How, and he's even got a, a brimmed hat on. I mean, how did you get light on Robert Shaw? There was there was a lot of light down there. Was there was a lot of light. Yeah, and it was, um, as you can see this on the ceiling, it was a long string of, of fluorescent, uh, not just one. It was several of them. And so with somebody with a hat on, there was still a lot of light getting un- underneath the hat, maybe from a little further away, but it was right. getting underneath it, and it was filling itself in. And it just had, had a beautiful quality to it. And I wanted it to look real, and it looks real. I mean, it it's looks like it's not lit yeah. because it's not lit, probably. Uh, in the car, there was a couple of, of lights um, where you, right there in, the, in the, the conductor's car, you can let it come forward a little more. You can see a little glow on the, okay. on the wall there. Well, that was one of those little bulbs. Those little bulbs. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Now, right, right before this, we looked at earlier a shot that um, where we actually introduced Robert Shaw's character, and I think I just want to talk a little bit about how deliberate the camera is in this film in terms of, you know, I think a lot of people rely so much now on coverage, and they shoot uh, various sizes of close-ups and things, And um, but this, you really feel like this, the camera is telling a story in this film, and and in this shot in particular, we start, we see a trombone case on the platform. We see somebody's waiting. They're a little anxious. And the camera just tilts up. And we find out we're at 28th Street because we see the sign. We see Robert Shaw. We're moving around him. We see a clock, and he's looking at his watch. You want to talk about about you and Joe Sargent and how you may have... Um, Talk about a little bit about the storytelling of the camera because now we rely so much on editing, I think. Um, I have to credit Joe a lot for that because Joe liked to move the camera. He liked to pan it. He liked to tilt it. Um, I was more a traditional shooter at the time. I liked, to, uh, I liked dolly shots and moves like that. And Joe did a lot with the, with the tilt and the pan, like I said. So he was very fluid in his whole approach to everything. Mm-hmm. I became familiar with Joe's work from a series that was on that later became a, uh, it, it was actually a, a mini-series and it later became a series. And it was the Marcus Nelson murders, it was called, with Telly Savalas. And I think it segued into Kojak. 
And that ran for many, many years on TV. But Joe had done those, and that's when I first became aware of Joe. And uh, when I found out that he was directing this and what he had done, I, I was very, um, I was very impressed. I was very happy that I'd be working with somebody like that. So Joe had a very, he had a good sense of fluidity. You know, nowadays, let's talk a little bit about. I mean, I just want to keep this about not only about the taking of Pelham one, two, three, but the differences of shooting now versus then and. You know, now, you know, one of the fir- within five minutes of an interview now, if I'm interviewing for a film, they just want to know how fast I am. And it, it seems like there probably were less setups back then, maybe because this camera's doing the storytelling as opposed to all these shots that we do now. And um, tell us a little bit about a typical day on a film then. I mean, how many, you know, sort of... How long were the days? Like now they're really long. How long were the days? What were the setups like? Just so some of the, the students can, who are listening maybe uh, can understand what it was like then to shoot film. You know, I haven't shot for a while now, so I can't tell exactly what, what it's like today except from what I hear. But typically in New York especially, we would shoot a 10-hour day, maybe a 12-hour day depending on the director, and, um, and that was scheduled that way. So we get our, works, our day's work done in that amount of time. Anything more than 12 hours, to me, is totally nonproductive. Yeah. And, in fact, um, at one point I had gotten my crews to, when they made their deals up front, to only ask for 10-hour guarantees because if you had 10-hour guarantee, they'd, they'd try to work you just the 10 right. and not push you for the 12. Okay. And so... And the guys were usually willing to do that. But, but we never worked, that I remember, we didn't work 14-hour days. I mean, right. once in a blue moon maybe, but it just wasn't the norm. And how many days were you shooting this film? Do you remember I don't, all? I don't remember. But I think we pretty much finished on schedule. I don't remember what it was. You just mentioned your crew. You wanna, um, I know you worked with Dusty Wallace, and I think your key grip was Bob Ward. and. Mm-hmm. Your focus puller must have been amazing, based on what I'm seeing here. Uh, in fact, I, I read in um, this book, um, Masters of Light, uh, there's a quote from you um, where, where the, uh, the author asked you about, about your crew, and you said, well, I wouldn't want to be my assistant. Um, tell us about, the, about, what, about working with your crew and how you approach that. You know, to me, the crew is like family. And um, they may not think so, but, but I did. And, and I, I wasn't always able to get the same gaffer. Um, sometimes I'd be, work with somebody, and then I'd be off, and they'd be right on another picture, and then I'd have something come up, and I'd have to use somebody else. Um, so I tried to whenever possible, and my camera crew pretty much stayed with me on most of these films. I think Tommy Priestley was my I think he was my assistant on this. Yeah, in fact I talked to Tom. Yeah, okay. So and and Tommy was he he was with me on the French Connection and I don't know almost every picture. Uh, yeah, just about every picture yeah. early in my career. And, and and Tommy was great. I mean, he was Well, he was very complimentary about working with you and how much you cared for the crew and and he felt at the time that that was a very different approach than had been uh, with cameraman before before he had worked with you. Um, he talked about how you were, um, you know, that it was that that you were just at that time a different cameraman. You had been college educated. You were um, the previous cameraman were from a, and your dad's generation were more from the newsreel cameraman. And um, he talked about that and how much he liked working with you and. Except for pulling focus itself, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why it was so difficult to pull focus is because I was always working wide open. Um, because I, I, I liked to work as much as possible around that available light quality. And to do that, you have to keep the light levels down. And so like I avoided using zoom lenses as much as possible because that meant lighting up all the time. Right. And my eye just wasn't trained for that. My eye was now trained for low levels, so I always figured what I see is what I'm going to get. Whereas if you're working at five, six or more, it's not what what you right. see is what you're going to get all the time. Right. You have to know what you're going to get. 
Um, you shared you shared a lot of the crew with um, Gordon Willis. It seemed like that a lot of them worked with Gordon, and then they worked with you. And um, we recently saw the Godfather um, film together, and it was, um, you know, I asked you afterwards, what did you think of that film when you saw it? Because again, like the French Connection, the Godfather also was uh, now we know was groundbreaking. What did you think when you saw that and that film? Groundbreaking. It was groundbreaking. Yeah, I mean, you know, Gordy and I are old friends, so um, yeah. Tell me about that because that's fascinating. Well, I'll give you the background. We were both assistant cameramen at the same time, working in the same commercial company. And and then when my father was um, a camera operator for Jerry Hirschfeld, mm-hmm. my father passed away at a very young age, and then Gordy became the operator. And so we worked together for a year where he was the operator and I was the assistant. And so we got to know each other pretty well. I mean, we were good friends. And, and then he, when he left... I jumped in and moved up to camera operator. So I should thank him for that. (laughs) And so, uh, in fact, we were both vying for our first feature film together. We were interviewing for the first feature film, and he got it. So he got the head start on me. Okay. Not by much, but... (laughs) But whatever it was. And so we were sort of, you know, playing tag along there, uh, in tandem, however you want to phrase it. (laughs) But... Uh, so Gordy and I go back a long way. When I saw The Godfather, I just said, wow, so great. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just fantastic and, and daring, which I knew Gordy was. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I could tell you stories of, of daring do and right. things that I, that I can't tell publicly. But, <laughs> but he, he has a great amount of chutzpah. Well, I would say that you and Gordon and, and Conrad Hall, Laszlo Kovacs, Vilmos, Sigmund were, were at the forefront of some of the most exciting cinematography we've seen in, in the 70s, the beginning of the 70s. And um, Did you guys have a relationship? Did all of you have a relationship together? I seem to recall some photos of you guys hanging out at a beach house together. That um, Did you uh, talk with each other on a regular basis or, or get inspiration from each other? And we we were very good friends, all of us. Uh, I wouldn't say that we hung out together all the time. Of course, Vilmos and Laszlo did. But we all knew each other well, and we would get together, and those pictures were from Creighton Smith's house. He had a beach house, and he was agent for, I think, Vilmos and Laszlo at the mm-hmm. time. And so we would just go out and hang out and yak and talk yeah. about all the problems we were having and, and um, how can we make things better. And we liked hanging out together too. Billy Fraker was involved with that, that group, and so and Haskell also. And right. It was just a lot of guys that just right. we all liked each other. We yeah. got along fine, and we shared a lot of um, whatever we could technically, knowledge-wise. It was great. Did you feel like you influenced each other? I, you know, let's face it. Everybody has their own influences. I, you always tried to see each other's work. Didn't make any, not particularly to get anything from it, but but we were always curious about what we were doing. It's like the impressionist painters, and and we all knew what challenges we faced, and we were always curious about how we solved them, and and like uh, Vilmos was always coming up with, he's always using fog filters and, and right. double fogs and all these techniques and things like that and talking about them. It, it, we just had this mutual admiration society. It, I find nice. it's just fantastic the way cinematographers often share their knowledge, talk to each other about how they did films. And um, Well, all, a lot of it is based, too, on the ASC. I mean, yes. we were all ASC members, right. and and that's what we would do. Uh, we would do that at the ASC, and then we'd right. do it socially on the weekends sometimes. Right. So that, that's what it's about. Well, we should, let's get back to the film a little bit and talk about some more. Sure. Um, there's a great shot here we looked at uh, earlier. That um, It's a great introduction of a character, I think, in the beginning when the camera is just outside the car and it's moving down the platform. It almost has a little bit of a handheld feel to it. Um, talk about about this shot a little bit and how it's a great introduction to the character. Well, I'm sure it was handheld. I mean, I don't remember specifically, but it looks like it was handheld. 
And uh, unless it, it, it could have been that Bobby Ward um, had rigged a little platform that we could put uh, put the operator on, and then he was hand-holding it rather, well, rather then, than leaning out the window. Back then, what camera would you have used for handheld back then? I mean, what? That's a good question because I'm trying to – probably just an Aeroflex with um, with the anamorphic lens on it, which would be heavy. I mean, that was the big problem with anamorphic was – especially in handheld. It still is today, I guess. It just makes it a lot heavier. It was pre-Steadicam, of course, so we didn't have that. Let's move ahead in the film to the police station, which is also almost a character of its own in the film. The um, You know, I find that the police station where Lieutenant Garber is – what I love about these shots is the, the low-angle shots in this. And it almost makes you feel like the um, in the film that you're, you're still underground. And again, it's all fluorescence in the ceiling. Were you adding to that? That's all set. And, and what I did was I got together with the production designer and... We went through it when he was placing the lights, and I requested how far apart each light would be and all those things, and he worked with me on that. And so that was all rigged ahead of time okay. so that I could virtually go in there and not have to do anything and just shoot with available light. Yeah, the camera seems to just roam freely in there wherever it It was. It was like that's, that's kind of a different kind of description of available light. Right. <laughs> It was available light once it was available. Okay. And I would just use white cards if I was going in for a close-up. I would just take a white card and stick it in someplace maybe to to just get a little fill here and there or take a black card and just to get a little negative fill if I was on a close-up just to get some modeling. Other than that, we just could shoot. As fast as Joe could think up the shots, that's how fast we could shoot. And and they are fluorescent in in there. In the all fiction? cool white fluorescent okay. bulbs. Yep. So you didn't even correct them. You just let them go so they Did, matched. Yeah, let the lab else. take care of it. Yeah. Yeah, I had done some tests ahead of time. Once they once they were rigged, I shot some exposure tests. Came up with the best exposure so that there were some some times where we were playing it. I believe we were playing it. I know I did tests to this effect. Were as if the lights were turned out or half the lights were turned out when it was supposed to be a different time of day. Okay. And so I could test different exposures for that, see how to get that mood. So this is um, about 14 minutes into the film, and now we're going to see some of the tunnels. And, and you know, this, here's some dark scenes. So talk about these tunnels, because now we're away from the platform. We're actually in the tunnel. And what I love about this is that it, it's not, uh, it is truly dark like a tunnel would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often see things like this so lit up in films, and I love uh, the shot we just saw also with the from behind the engineer and you see they're lit just a little and and the tunnel's very dark what we had to do every night we had to break down the lights and take them out because really? it was so that it tra- they could move trains in and out of there at night and i was just trying to figure out how we could not have to get crazy with this so what we did was we took all those bulbs and changed them all to number two photo floods. Okay. And then we sprayed each one of them on the camera side with streaks and tips to knock down the hot spot so they wouldn't flare the lenses. Okay. Because anamorphic lenses would flare like crazy. I don't know what the newer ones are like, but those were C lenses at the time, I think, and, yeah. and they would flare. <clears throat> and so this way we didn't have to break down a lot of lights. The only things I used to augment the lighting in there then was an occasional Baby Junior or something like that on a stand that I could keep hidden behind a, a, a post of some kind in case I needed some something to pick up a face or throw a highlight on the tracks or something like that, which you'd see in later scenes. But other than that, that too is basically available light. Um, the flashing came in handy there because okay. without the flashing, all you saw were dots. You didn't see oh, anything wow. Anything with, with, with the flashing. You could now see detail in the shadows. Yeah, you can see there's a structure to the tunnel. There's, yeah, you could see all of that. You couldn't see that without the flashing. 
Uh, this shot I've paused on here is also fantastic. We're looking at um, Robert Shaw inside the um, with the engineer, and we see just a, just some of those lights, those photo floods. I imagine going uh, soft focus in the background to indicate the tunnel, and mm-hmm. then we also see inside the car that's more brightly lit. Mm-hmm. In this shot, we can barely see the actors' faces, which is fantastic. I mean, I love the way this looks, and I mean, again, it looks very real. Yeah, there's plenty of light on their faces. Yeah, there's plenty. <laughs> um, the the what we what we did too, and I don't know if it was in this particular shot or some of the other ones where we're closer. We built a platform that we put on f- the front of the car, okay. and then we had a. Um, I think we 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 used the the car itself, but had a platform on front of it where we could put the camera on and move along with it and be outside the car. And for other shots where we were behind them moving, we did, there was no room to get a camera in that cab. Right. But we have shots in the cab looking forward. And there we built a mock-up cab okay. on a platform also that we attached to the front of the, of the car and then tracked that around. Okay. So we could get some, some different angles and shots like that. It's a very funny thing because one day I got a... Um, I got an email from, or not an email, I didn't have any email. <laughs> I got a letter, a little note from Edgar Sherrick, um, the producer, and he said, with all due respect to the Prince of Darkness, I'm paying Robert Shaw $75,000 to do this film. I'd like to see his eyes just once. <laughs> so um, I chuckled. Well, that's why I wanted to ask that, because, again, just going back to this is in the early 70s, and, and it, you know, before this I think people were lighting more in the style of uh, key light on the actor's face. People really saw movie stars. And um, this is not your approach here, but it really worked for the story. And, and also, I have to say, these guys were amazing actors. And, and no offense to them, but they weren't necessarily beauty, you know, uh, beautiful uh, movie star quality uh, looking men, but they just were real looking, and they were such tremendous actors. Well, one of the things, too, that helped make them look real as I did in most of my films then, mm-hmm. I didn't u- use makeup. I, oh, I, wow. I didn't want makeup on the actors. Okay. And only if they had something that was offensive in the skin or anything like that would we touch them up. And then if we did, it had to be very, very natural looking. But we never used pancake makeup or anything right. like that. Because also, when I worked with soft light, pancake makeup, for example was terrible. It looked phony. When I see shows now on TV or in the theater, and I, and I see the makeup jump off the faces, it's just, it's, I find it disgusting. <laughs> I mean, they, they're supposed to look real, so yeah. they wouldn't look like Absolutely. made up. So we want them to look real. No, they do, and they're fantastic. And the performances are amazing in this film, I think. Robert Shaw and I used to play ping pong every lunch hour on, on the subway. We'd he had them really? bring a table in, and we played every day. How did you do? Well, he was a really good player, and um, he was very frustrated by the fact he never could beat me. <laughs> <laughs> talk, talk, well, talk a little bit about working with Robert Shaw and Walter Matthau then. I mean, they're, uh, again, fantastic actors. Uh, what was your relationship with them like on, with, with the camera? I mean, did you... Um, you know, I love seeing performances through the camera or, by, or standing by the camera when I'm when I'm working. What uh, what was that like with those? Well, well you're watching pros. Um, anytime you, even Hector, Hector Alessandro, all those guys, yeah. they were good. Yeah. They were really good, and Joe worked well with them. And so, y- you don't notice as much when somebody's really good. You don't notice their performance because it just feels natural. And that's the way it always felt with those guys. You never felt like they were acting. They're just great actors. Yeah. Mathau, Mathau was funny and charming, uh, easy, and they were all really easy to work with too. Here's a, I love this scene when the um, the supervisor comes down. It's very it's sort of chaotic, and we're we're in the uh, on the platform, but we're going to make a transition. It we're might have been on a platform, down. Dolly. Okay. I'm not sure. And we're going to end up down in the tunnel with him as well. And this is one of the few times in the film where we're, where there's a significant amount of handheld. We use yeah. two cameras sometimes. Um, 
Not often. Most of the time we use one. Yeah, look how bright. Now we've got a flashlight coming at us here with the, in the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, that. I mean, I had to light the, a couple of shots with, uh, you know, to to balance up to that tunnel mm-hmm. and still keep it dark. I mean, I was working probably three foot candles. And this too, of course, is the low the emergency lighting, so it's much warmer and darker. Now, this when the when the train is parked in this scenario, or is it is it on a stage, or are you in the still working down in the subway? still working down there? The only stage work we did that I can recall was that police station. It was the control room, I guess. Uh, it was it was the transit transit control room, and it, and it and the reason why it feels like it's underground still mm-hmm. is because it theoretically is, even though it was on a stage. Right. This might be a good time to go back and talk about um, what Robert Ellswood said that started this whole thing in a way. Um, you know, he said, I don't know if I could do this now with the equipment I have. And um, Tobias Fleischer is ASC is uh, working on a remake, taking a Pelham 123 with Tony Scott. And um, I uh, wrote and asked him about um, his approach for that film. It's a modern film. Um, and here's what he had to say. He, uh, quoting him from an email he sent me, um, he said, "I can't tell you how often I thought of Owen Roysman and the difficulties he had to co- to overcome in the tunnels with anamorphic lenses and slow film stocks." He said, "I spent two months underground, and it was the greatest challenge I had to face in my career. My first discussions with Tony Scott was all about how we could light the tunnels, and on what format we would have the most versatility. Shooting on HD was a good possibility because of its low light range." We ended up shooting a lighting test in the tunnels um, lit with sodium vapor practicals with the Panavision Genesis, the Sony F23, the RED camera, and on film, the Vision 5219 stock. So we compared all formats in the DI suite at Company 3 and ended up choosing the 5219 stock over HD. We still could get more detail in the under and overexposure on film than on HD. We chose Super 35 with an anamorphic DI blowup because of the faster lenses available. Again, I can't tell you the respect I have for Owen's work on Pelham, knowing the difficulties he had to face shooting with the equipment available at the time. Uh, Yes, I watched the original movie numerous times and was inspired by Owen's work. I also am a big fan of the revolutionary work of cinematographers in the 70s that changed the look of movies to another level. Um, I then asked him about shooting anamorphic specifically, and he said, "In in regards to anamorphic versus Super 35, my choice would always be anamorphic. There is nothing like it. In the case of Pelham, we shot the entire movie with three and often four cameras simultaneously and all on primo zooms, especially the three-to-one with a one-and-a-half extender. I knew that I'd have to light to at least a 5.6 stop for the anamorphic zoom lens, which would have made it so much harder in the tunnels. So in this case, anamorphic was never a realistic option for me. So we're kind of coming back to this thing of here we have a modern cinematographer who is shooting in Super 35, um, and and sort of uh, some of the, you know, looking at this work is amazing. But you've been retired for a few years now, and if you, but I know you've been, you're very active in the ASC, and I know you keep up with everything that's going on. Um, you know, if you had to shoot this movie now with everything that's available, what do you think you would choose to shoot it on? Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I hadn't really thought about it, but I probably would... Uh probably would try to shoot it in anamorphic and um, with uh, film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, film has has that great range. Yeah. You've got the overexposure, you got the underexposure. You have that latitude that... I mean, HD one day probably will be okay, but for me, so far from what I've seen, it's not there yet. It's not like film. Yeah. Film film is still great. And, you know, I had this discussion with other people about anamorphic versus Super 35. Mm-hmm. I never shot Super 35, and that was because we had to do an optical release. And nobody wanted to really go that route. I like the pure quality of that big negative. And when you go to the Super 35, you're taking a smaller part of the negative. And always, you always want to have the biggest negative you can. But with DIs now, and you can go back out the film, um, I imagine it's a good tool. 
and you can have the, the use of smaller lenses and faster lenses and things like that. We didn't use zoom lenses either. So we, you know, I mean, we, I wouldn't even think about using a zoom lens down there. There was, <laughs> no, there was no reason for it. Yeah. We set up so we could use dollies and, right. and could do some handheld and things like that. It's fine. I, I, I don't, I mean, yeah, I've used zoom lenses in my films, but I don't really like the look of zoom lenses. I've used it for a, as a just a very focal lens, so that you could save time and zoom in, you know, resize things like that. It's good for matching purposes too. But I'm not a big fan of it. I'd much rather move the camera. Well, let's. I'd like to talk about a couple of of a uh, couple of points in your career, if we could. One is there. There's a, a period between, um, you know, say Tootsie in 1982 and I Love You to Death in 1990 that you shot, uh, where you only shot one feature film in between so you know my dad was a big baseball fan and he always commented about uh ted williams and how he he left to go off to fight the war and and left basically in the prime of his career and interrupted a a great career and um you know it it feels like you know just by looking at your resume that you left at a a time when you probably could have um shot some fantastic films so tell us a little bit about about that well, I, my son was a teenager at the time, mm-hmm. and I had just done three films back-to-back-to-back to back to back in the beginning of the 80s, and, and it was difficult. I wanted to spend some time with him. I didn't want to miss his growing up. So what I decided to do was take a hiatus from films. I opened a commercial company, production company, and I directed and shot commercials for five years while he was going through his glorious teenage years. And then when he got his driver's license, um, (laughs) (laughs) it coincided with the time where there was a writer's strike in the mid-'80s and the commercial business was starting to get a little more competitive, things like that. So I closed it up, and the next day, just a coincidence, I got a call to go do Love You to Death. And so I was back doing features again. And and Eric is now in the film business, and he's a, yeah. a camera operator. Yes. Um, you know what? What do you think of that? Oh, it's great. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Chip off the old block. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you certainly had an amazing career. I mean, and uh, some of the films we haven't even talked about are Three Days of the Condor and The Electric Horseman, True Confessions, Absence of Malice, Grand Canyon. These are uh, uh, films I love. Um, you you retired very fairly early though you were pretty much on top um, what what led to that decision to, to it was retire? purely based on physical things yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I had uh, some physical problems and um, when I was a kid when I was thirteen I had polio and I was doing fine with it but in 1981 I got hit with what they call post polio syndrome syndrome it's like getting the disease all over again and so. Starting then, it's been a progressive degeneration. I was affected in my leg, and it's been a progressive degeneration. And uh, just every day it gets a little worse. So, uh, you know, as a cinematographer, you have to be able to bounce around and move pretty quick and, and uh, be able to get yourself in places that no human can. And, <laughs> and uh, that was becoming harder and harder. So I decided... It was time. I had to pack it in. It wasn't. It was. It was like a forced choice. Well, you look great every time I see you. I think you Thanks. look younger. Um, I am. In the meantime, I'm getting <laughs> older. I think so. Yeah. 